So, you know, there's nothing wrong with doing helpful things for people. There's nothing wrong with us taking food to the hungry, medical supplies to those who are hurting. In fact, that's that's a good thing to do. Um, but for this to be truly Christian, all of these must go hand in hand with the things that are very clear in Scripture, and that's the verbal presentation of the gospel as it relates to Jesus Christ so that people may have their sins forgiven. Now, there's plenty of secular and religious organizations that are giving people food and shelter. And in that, I'm, I'm convinced that we also must do good things to help people physically. But that has to go along with our mouths in communicating the truth about Jesus Christ to help them come to a spiritual knowledge of salvation. If we don't present the gospel that leads to eternal life, all we have done is we have either... Uh, uh, um, clothed a person or fed a person or, or uh, got shelter for a person that in the end is going to hell. Now, there's a big difference between what a Christian does and what the world will do. The world thinks we have to help out these people because that's what people do. Well, how did they get that idea? How did they, why do they, I mean, don't they believe in the law of natural selection? Or you should let them go because they believe in evolution, right? If you just let them go, then you, you have the, uh, uh, the most fit people are able to end up uh, propagating the earth. But they know themselves that they need to take care of these people. Where'd they get that? They got that because they know that down deep, God created them. And we, we need to realize that there are missionary agencies and all over the country and in many countries that help people physically. But one of the problems is not a lot of them will preach the gospel. They carry on this underground covert operation so they think that the mission is actually to bring food and shelter and clothing to these people. Um, and they think if we, if we open our mouths, there'll be persecution. But they end up doing this without bringing the gospel that is, is the power of God unto salvation. And you can't get that from the book of Acts. Because in the book of Acts, we see that Peter and John got in serious trouble for doing that very thing. The apostles in the early church, those who were sent out by Christ, they acted in Christ's authority. And if you really think about it in the, the real sense, uh, you think about what a, a, an apostle is. An apostle is one sent by the Father to do His will. So Jesus Christ really was an apostle of Christ or, or apostle of God as well because he was one sent by the Father to do the Father's will. Now, this is necessary at, at that time because God used these apostles to complete the writing of Scripture. And so he also used these signs and wonders that Christ performed through his apostles to attest to the fact that they were in fact sent by God himself. In other words, it, it was the signs that authenticated the testimony and claims of the apostles and pointed to the one whom they got their power from to perform those. People often regard miracles as pointless. In fact, those recorded in the Bible have particular significance. Each one draws attention to something. They don't happen in isolation. They're linked to the message. The Holy Spirit is associated with both miracle and message. And that's obvious in the healing of this lame man at the temple. The signs uh, did not therefore serve as an end in and of themselves. Rather, they pointed to the one 
who alone has the power to perform all, and that's Christ himself. Now, as we see the balance of the book of Acts, we see this progress of this new creational kingdom that was inaugurated at Pentecost. And at the outset, it's important for us to understand Luke's narrative has an alternating structure. It's continually moving back and forth from consideration of the church's outward mission to its internal life as God's new household of faith. The appropriateness of this narrative uh, structure is evident in the fact that these two dynamics, the church life and mission, function together in reciprocal fashion to promote the progress of Christ's kingdom in the world. And Luke constructed his account as a, an historical record of this progress. The reciprocal relationship of Christ's internal life and external mission is summarized as by this. The church's authentic existence is the ground and the um, impetus of external mission. Its gospel witness to the world is the inherent fruit of its existence in the world. Individually and collectively, Christians are the fragrance of Christ. And you see that in 2 Corinthians 2. But you see, this mission, in turn, is the engine by which the, the Spirit builds the church. First in terms of adding it to its numbers, but also in terms of its progression into maturity. The former is associated more with the church's success in missions. The latter is the op uh, opposition of the gospel uh, uh, that the gospel mission encounters. Being the fragrance of Christ, the church is to some the aroma of, of life that leads unto life, but to others it's the aroma of death that leads unto death. The great preacher Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said this, this, and I quote, The church is not here to talk politics, to play music, to give uh, uh, philosophical discourses, to produce art, or to provide social uh, amelioration or psychological treatment. No, the business of the church is to deal with the real problem of men and women, not to give alms, but to offer a cure for paralysis. This is the unique message of the church, and this is what differentiates it from every other institution under the sun. The church is not a cultural center or a, a psychological clinic or a social in agency. No, her calling, her commission is to deal with the souls of men and women. This is what causes their paralysis, end quote. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to our text. It's found in the book of Acts, chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 10 this morning. Acts, chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately... His feet and ankle bones received strength. So he leaped up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. 
And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, you might recall that Jesus told the disciples that they were to begin their proclamation of the gospel in Jerusalem. And not only did they uh, proclaim that in Jerusalem, but they went right to the temple and proclaimed it, even though these religious leaders had just put Jesus to death. You know, as the church age began, God was doing these amazing things through the hands of the apostles. They did, on occasion, help people physically, but proclaim the gospel loudly. And by the time you get to Acts chapter 4, you can see that they ended up in serious trouble. No matter what we do for other people, the greatest need is to have their sin atoned for in the sight of the living and holy God. Their greatest need is to believe on Jesus Christ and be saved. Whatever else we say or do, we not, must not be prevented from sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so look at verse 1 again, and we see uh, the time of the miracle. It, there it says, Pete, Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Now the first thing that we need to understand is that there are several times during the day that you would go to the temple in Jerusalem. And uh, sometimes it was open for prayer. And that's based on Psalm 55, 16, and 17. We see that there are three times specifically designated. These new believers in Jerusalem still, were still involved in Jewish things. Some of the specific prayer times included 9 a.m., which would have been the third hour, 12 a.m. or 12 noon, which would have been the sixth hour, and then some occurred at the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m. Now, if uh, hour one is 6 a.m., then hour three is, or, or hour nine is 3, uh, 3 p.m. And so we may assume that Peter and John were going up to the temple for the 3 p.m. prayer, because that's what it says. And they had to go up to the temple because the temple is on a mount. But listen here. They didn't shy away from proclaiming the truth in the very place and uh, to the very people who killed Christ. Now just to, as a point of interest as to this ninth hour, this ninth hour is the hour that Jesus used to describe when those late laborers were hired in Matthew twenty. Verse 5, this hour was also the hour when Christ cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this hour would have been the hour when Cornelius would have had this remarkable vision of law versus great uh, grace. And then it was also the hour when the lame man was healed, and we'll see that here. Another aspect of this verse is that the miracle takes place in the temple or just outside the temple, which was for the Jews a religious center, the center of worship. However, as Christ is now exalted and has, along with the Father, sent the person of the Holy Spirit, the center of worship is now fundamentally shifted away from the physical temple. If you remember the Samaritan woman at the well, she said to Jesus in John 4.20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Remember what Jesus said in uh, John 4.24? God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And so you see, now Peter and John were being led to understand uh, that their, uh, their being present here was, was showing that Jesus has uh, brought up a new temple. It is the apostles that were now the temple. And so if they go to this temple where you would have the, the prayer and the sacrifice, and 
we would see that this is now a change. So they, they're just outside the gate, and they see that Jesus, by his death, has rendered this temple building um, obsolete. And we see that again today. As the church unfolds, it will never look uh, to the temple as its model for existence, sadly enough, in the Middle Ages. Some people went down the wrong route and they started to look at the synagogues as the basis for Christian worship and life. But you see, Christ died as a means for atonement. The sacrificial system is on its way out and would eventually disappear. On the day of Pentecost, when the tongues of fire fell on these, these men's head, remember that in Acts chapter 2? They marked how this new covenant community as God's new temple was comprised of living stones, of people. And, and this is where the Spirit dwells in this new, new temple. You see, in God's plan, there's a connection as well as a disconnection between the old and the new. There's not an obliteration of the old, and the old is, is actually affirmed and fulfilled instead of obliterated. Some people like to think that the Old Testament is obliterated with the New Testament, and that's not true. The New Testament fulfilled the Old, Test, uh, Old Testament. The Old Testament is transformed and transcended by the New Testament. And so here in these early days, the apostles continue to observe the the uh, set seasons for worship. And that's why they're going up to the temple. For many years, they started their missionary labors by going into the synagogues. And then they started reaching out to the Gentiles. If you remember what Paul says, he says the gospel is first for the Jews and then the Gentiles. Where were the Jews? They were at the temple. They were at the temple for prayer. And so one afternoon, Peter and, and John were going up 3 o'clock. But it's interesting that they went up at the hour of prayer. There were hours of prayer and there were hours of sacrifice. There were still uh, two sacrifices that were being made each day, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. And then there were public worship and prayer immediately after that. So this this. Uh, was a prayer service that they attended, not a sacrificial service. And, you know, when we think about that, the last and final sacrifice had been made by Jesus Christ himself. And so in verse 2 of our text, it says, And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask for alms from those who entered the temple. It's the hour of prayer that accompanied the evening service. This approach to the temple that, uh, that took him up to this, this uh, gate called Beautiful, uh, I think it's interesting that Josephus says that this temple was built by Herod and it was one of the wonders of the world. And this gate, the whole temple was the, one of the most beautiful of all. But listen to this. This gate was made of Corinthian bronze. It actually far exceeded the value of the gates that were plated with silver or set into gold. So, you know, we sit there and go, bronze, that's, you know. But see, that Corinthian bronze was so exceedingly valuable that it actually was more valuable than the silver and gold. And it says that this man was set there and he was lame, cripple, since birth. Now think about this though. Luke is the one writing this. And what is Luke? Luke is a doctor. And so do, uh, Dr. Luke gives us specific, uh, specific medical facts that surround this miracle. The actual word for lame is kolos. And it means that he was maimed. His, his legs didn't function. 
he was not able to walk at all. He was actually carried. And we know, based on Acts 4.22, that this man was crippled for over 40 years. So he had to literally, and medically and physically, uh, uh, he, was, he was crippled since he was born. He was living in total helplessness and hopeless condition. He, he didn't wake up in the morning thinking, man, this is going to be a great day. No matter how much money he would get, what he would sit there and go, this is the day I'm going to have to beg. I'm going to have to lay there until someone gives me enough money so that I can feed myself, only to return tomorrow and do the same thing. And so this, critical, this miracle was really critical. This is a miracle of pure grace. That's because this man couldn't keep the law. He couldn't enter the temple. He was a beggar. He had no hope of himself, uh, in himself, or of himself, of anything, much less salvation. And this is a great miracle to begin the church age with because it perfectly illustrates what grace did to you and I. It transforms sinful beggars who have been sinners from their mother's womb. You know what, folks? We are just beggars showing other beggars where to find food. This isn't a condition, this, or this is a condition that we all live in. It's our spiritual life before we come to Christ. But you know, our condition as sinners is actually worse than this, this guy because we're spiritually dead. In Ephesians 2.1, it says that we are dead in our sin and trespasses. We are completely helpless and hopeless, just like this man. And we can thank God that some friend or family member sought to help us in our spiritual condition. They brought us to where the Word of God was being preached. And so these people would carry this poor guy to this temple gate. Isn't that weird? He's brought to this gate named Beautiful so he could sit and beg for alms. He couldn't go in. He wasn't allowed because Levitical law said any person with a defect was not permitted in the, the temple. If you please turn to Leviticus chapter 21. And this gets very specific, folks. You know, who could be part of this? Leviticus chapter 21. Starting with verse 17, it says, Speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your descendants in succeeding generations, who has any defect, may approach to offer the bread of his God. For any man who has a defect shall not approach. A man blind or lame, who has a marred face or any limb too long, a man who has broken a broken foot or broken hand, or is a hunchback or a dwarf, or a man who has a defect in his eye or eczema or scab or is a eunuch. No man of the descendants of Aaron, the priest, who has defect shall come near to offer the offerings made by fire to the, <clears throat> to the Lord. He has a defect. He shall not come near to the offering offer the bread of his God. So he had a defect. He wasn't allowed in to even worship God. He's sitting out, this, out of this gate and he's begging alms. This Greek word alms 
is actually Alemosune, Alemosune, and it actually means mercy or pity or charity. You see, there was no social programs to help the handicapped. There was no government funding, federal aid. These people had to beg people to show mercy on them. And to, to be able to do that, most people would just give them a little money. And, of course, this was a legitimate need. This man wasn't just some guy who was lazy and didn't want to work. He was physically handicapped. He could not work. And so his friends brought him to this beautiful gate of the temple. And so in verse 3, it says, uh, who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. When he saw Peter and John go into the temple, he asked for money. He probably didn't realize that they were uh, apostles. More than likely, he had no idea that who they even were. And, and obviously had no idea of the possibility of actually being physically healed. All he wanted to do was get through one more day. And when he saw Peter and John about ready to go into the uh, temple, he asked for some money. And it's interesting that that, that word um, uh, asking in the Greek is etao, and it, it's in the imperfect tense, which means this man had been doing this for years, over and over and over. This wasn't something new. And in verse 4, it says, And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. Now keep in mind that Peter and John had just been involved with preaching the word of God to literally thousands and seeing thousands of people saved. This was big time ministry, folks. They could have easily walked past this guy without even batting an eye. This broken down beggar. I mean, what is he compared to thousands of people? But this teaches us something about the early church. One is just as important as a thousand. How often do we hear, well, you know, if you only reach one. You know what I found out? This normally means if I can reach one out of a thousand. Years ago, when I was, uh, had an outreach called Teen Talk, there was a stretch of time. We used to meet at this restaurant and I would, meet, I would sit there, and then the kids would come, come in. And I think we met at about 5 o'clock. And we would uh, go up upstairs, and we would have pizza, and we would uh, just talk. And I remember week after week, probably three or four weeks, no one showed up. All of the restaurant workers go, Brendan, why are you wasting your time? Why would you continually show up when these kids are no longer coming? Well, on that fourth week, a young, late, a young girl came walking in. And she happened to be the only one. What had happened is her mother just forced her to have an abortion. And she was just absolutely devastated. And actually, to add insult to injury, her aunt after she had the abortion, thinking that she was being kind, said, oh, you should have just told me. I would have helped you with the baby. That just added to her grief. So I was able to sit there and tell her about the Lord Jesus Christ. I was able to share the gospel with her. You know, sometimes we are in such a hurry to get somewhere to do nothing. We just think time is so important. We don't have the time for the things that matter. These apostles realized that now is the time of salvation. These apostles took time to minister to one hurting sinner after they had reached thousands you know, some churches get caught up in the numbers. Not Peter and John. I want you to notice what happens here. 
Peter and John fixed their, their gaze on this crippled man. And most of the time you'd walk past, you wouldn't make eye contact, right? You just see him there and you just sort of throw him some money. Kenneth Gangle said, imagine the drama here as Peter locks his eyes on this beggar. Rather than reaching for some money, they stare straight at him with a very focused look. Peter and John then commanded the, the man to look at them. And the verb look at us is just one word in the, in the Greek. It's a word blepo. And it means to see with discernment. And it's in the, what's called the aorist tef, uh, imperative. It's basically a command. This man was told, look at us now. At this specific moment, look at us. Now, some have wondered why Peter and John commanded uh, him to look at them. And the answer is because beggars always look for the next potential uh, donor. They saw these guys walk in, and as soon as they would have realized, well, these guys aren't going to give me anything, they're looking to see what the next person has. Are they reaching in their pockets? But they said, look at us. Because that beggar wasn't interested in Peter and John. He was interested in their money. His eyes were always on the lookout. But verse 5 tells us, so he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. When Peter gave him this command with these sharp eyes looking straight at this guy, he got the beggar's full attention. He focused his eyes on the apostles expecting to receive money. Now, this command ensured two things. First, it ensured that the man uh, would take his eyes off of himself and look up. Isn't that what we're told? Aren't we told, take your eyes off and look up just as those who looked up at the serpent in the wilderness? Secondly, it ensured that the lame man would realize that no man of Peter's lowly uh, Galilean status would inherently be able to perform any kind of miracle. Therefore, the miracle would point to one who could. And that's what miracles do. The level of his expectation was pretty low. What he thought his problem was, wasn't really his problem. There was a sense in which he had given up ever having hope. And I don't suppose he ever thought that it was ever physically possible to be healed. And in many ways, doesn't that represent the world? It, it rep represents the way that people look at the church. They, they just go, okay, what, what does that have to uh, do with my situation? I don't need that. I'll just get through this. I'll look for alms or whatever to help me through in the next day. A lot of people come to church just for moral advice. Other people come because there's great music or uh, uh, phys, uh, philosophical speculation, maybe some psychological support, maybe some uh, political pronouncements. You know, there's all kinds of reasons that people come to church. They look to the church and they go, you know, the church should be doing something about this or that or the other thing. They try to get the church involved in all sorts of stuff that is not gospel-centered. They have expectations of the, what the church should or shouldn't be. And so many people come to church to be cheered up, to be entertained, maybe see some good art or hear some good music. Maybe to have the social problems met. Maybe they come to meet a husband or a wife. Now, it's not bad to come for, for those reasons if that's not primary. 
But the problem of humanity runs deeper than any political, social, philosophical, or intelligent issues, intellectual issues. You see, this man had a problem. He was crippled. And that kept him from getting into the, the temple. And that's the problem with humanity. Sin problem that keeps us out of the temple and away from God. Look at verse 6, what Peter says. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Peter, in his response, makes it very clear, doesn't he? You can almost sense this man's sinking, sinking heart. He hears those words, silver and gold I do not have. He's probably going, oh, why did I waste my time? Now, I'm, I'm pretty sure Peter probably had some money. He would have probably been happy to give the guy money. But he had something else in mind. This guy is probably thinking in frustration, why are you talking to me, wasting my time? This is a cruel joke. But you see, all the cash in the world wouldn't have taken care of the cares that this guy had. It wouldn't have showed the compassion of a loving creator. It wouldn't have given this guy a solution for his problem uh, limbs, his 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 plight. If we look at this, we see that this guy is where? At the temple. It's on the property of God. It is where you worship God. And you only have a couple options. You only have a couple options when you make the temple what you want it to be. Some people think, well, you know, I, I don't need to go to church. I don't need to be part of a group. I don't need to be this. I can do my own thing. Well, let me tell you, there's only two people in this world, those who believe and those don't. Believers and unbelievers. And unbelievers are basically atheists, right? For this man, for the atheist, people would have said, well, this is a condition that anyone else could have. You know, it's impersonal chance that this guy happened to be born that way. Evolutionary forces, random destiny. There's no meaning to it whatsoever. Because if there's anything anywhere in the world that could help this man... It wasn't Peter and John. But you see, God ends up saying, you know what? I created this world. This world isn't what I desired because sin, sin entered this world. It's not what it was meant to be. When sin entered this world, now there's decaying bodies, broken, broken bodies, broken minds. Now death has is, is, uh, been introduced. You know, there are so many people that say all we have to do is be good Samaritans. All we have to do is offer people something that helps them out of being demoralized by their affliction. All we have to do is go to these people and say, well, you know what? Let me, let me give you some money. Let me give you some gifts. Let me do this because my sympathy is going to mean so much. I'll tell you what, if that's all you have to say, there are plenty of other people in the world that have that to say as well. I can think of so many groups of people that are non-believers that will do that same thing. As a matter of fact, they'll do that to animals as well. Oh, look at that animal, that poor, you know, if you're a good person, you will give. So what's the difference? The thing is, we have to offer something. We have to have a different message. 
because the message of the world is let me give you money, now try harder. Let me help you this way, now get it together. Work harder. The world gives us a cynical view. But if you notice here, Peter says, silver and gold, I have none. He was looking to give this crippled man something better. This man didn't request it. This man wasn't even seeking it. He wasn't asking for a sovereign grace of God to be shown upon him in this gift. That's because God gives his grace freely. And this is important because in the early days of the church, the thing that the apostles did to change people's lives was to preach the word of God, not organize some uh, welfare social program. These apostles were not trying to buy people's affection. They were not trying to do a bait and switch. Do this and, and say, wasn't that nice? Now do you want to join? They weren't trying to have some social marketing blitz so people would like them. They didn't make generous donations hoping people would believe in Jesus Christ. They simply proclaimed the truth about Jesus. And what we really need to do to make a big difference in our society is not to give a bunch of money to charity. And I'm not saying, please don't read this wrong. That is all good stuff. But what we need to do is proclaim the Word of God so that the power of the Holy Spirit transforms lives. This church age program did not start by running a social program. It began by preaching the truth and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter responds by saying, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. That verb tense, walk, is in the present, which means it was a command. It wasn't only a command. It was do it now. The power to do this is in the name. The name of Jesus Christ has the power to save you right now at this moment. The name of Christ has the power to save. Notice, they bring out the fact that Jesus was the Nazarene. If you recall, Nazareth was a Galilean hometown of Jesus. These words wouldn't sound too good to the Jewish ears around the temple. The Jews didn't think anything could come, uh, good could come out of Nazareth. And we saw that in John 1.46. They didn't think any prophet could come out of Galilee. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, what did they put? They put a sign that said, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. But this one they had rejected is God with all the power of God. And then in verse 7, it says, And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. In other words, this was a complete miracle. This wasn't gradual. Didn't get better. He didn't have several months of therapy after. This was something that he had never done before. You can just imagine this crippled guy never having even put pressure on his feet or legs. He didn't need to be helped. He didn't need to be walked around and, hey, you want to get the hang of this? This was immediate. The Greek words indicate that this man was crippled on the foot and also the ankles. And in that time, there was no corrective surgeries that could possibly be performed. And remember, this is Luke, medical doctor. And Luke likes to describe this stuff in detail, showing that this was a miracle. And what's even more amazing is that this happened to this man with no connection to faith. 
You know, you, you always hear this. I, I, I uh, had a lady in the church at one point. She said, you know what? I was all into the faith healers and then uh, my, my sister got ca- uh, cancer and she died. And you know what they said? You didn't give enough money and, you, and someone didn't have enough faith. Therefore, they died. And religious faith healers put on this show all the time. Because guess who's looking for the money? Look at who's asking for money. And then if you don't, if you're not healed, they blame it on lack of giving and faith. But this man, he didn't have any faith. He was a recipient of the amazing act of grace. And according to Acts 3.16, it not only affected him physically, but spiritually. Kenneth Gagel also says, as strength entered his ankles, faith entered his heart. How do we know that? Verse 8. It tells us that this, com- this healing was complete, not only physical, but spiritual. So he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, praising God. You see, this man's feet and ankles were strong enough to walk and jump. His brain had to tell his feet something. How This is how you walk. This is how you do this. He was catapulted off the ground and praised God. This was not simply a healing of his body. This is the creation of non-existent muscle tissue, training the brain to direct the limbs to do something he had never done before. He had been uh, uh, paralyzed for 40 years. That's what Acts 4.22 says. And so this was remarkable. This is a restorative creation. You see, when God heals, He does it instantaneous. And Luke repeats this three times as he stresses this man walking. To Luke, the physician, this was the most remarkable thing. Not just because the the man's ankles were healed, but he was able to walk and leap. But if you notice, Peter does not save the man. He does not have the authority to do so. Rather, Peter has the authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ to produce a sign that points to the greatest reality, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this man is not happy because he has money. He didn't get any money from these guys. He was happy because he was healed. He was on his feet. And you know what he was most happy for? He could walk into the temple. He now was able to go and worship God. And that's exactly what God will do for any who believe on Jesus Christ. We have all been crippled by sin. And when we believe on Jesus Christ, He causes us to stand straight in a relationship with Him. In newness of life, we leap for joy when our hearts and our minds are are just bound together going, we need to worship and praise this God who has just healed me. And so after he was healed, Luke writes, this man entered the temple walking and leaping and praising God. Notice, he wasn't praising Peter and John. He was praising God, the one who healed him. The one who gave him eternal life. And not only that, as this man was praising God, he was bearing witness to the transformed life. The effects of this transformation could not have been more radical. Folks, he could not only walk, but he could worship. And the people in the temple took note. We see that in verses 9 and 10. And all these people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. You see, this man had a 
a pitiful, he was a pitiful sight just sitting outside the temple day after day after day. Now he can walk into the temple. His focus is no longer on his needs. It's on praising God. The people not only saw the change in his physical state, but they witnessed the change in his spiritual nature. God was glorified in the healing of this lame man. He's supremely glorified in our salvation, folks. In accordance with the will of the Father, the work of the Spirit, and the work of Christ on the cross. We now have a regenerative and indwelling work in the Holy Spirit. It was because of the exalted Christ that this man could now glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's now because of Christ he could enter that temple. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have the story of this miracle that Luke points us toward that great day that's coming. But it's also a picture of salvation a picture of our human condition outside the temple, unable to to draw near to the throne of, of God with boldness. I pray that we take hold of that promise, that we make it our own, that we come near to You through our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we would leap with joy in His presence. Help us with our to know and to be assured with confidence of what You've done in us. Help us to be a people that are leaping and praising and standing in the grace that You provided for us to stand in. I pray that there would be people looking at us and having no doubt that we belong to You, that You indeed are our God and that we are your people. We thank you in the name of our most most glorious and precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.